Well, good morning, church. I am uh, excited for uh, what the Lord's been doing, and uh, we are in the middle of a series uh, about heroes, and I love talking about heroes. I'm kind of a hero nerd and uh, enjoy that, and uh, we, we opened uh, the series talking about how heroes sometimes come in all shapes and sizes, and it's surprising uh, to think about the heroes that we encounter every day, and sometimes we think of heroes as untouchable, as ahead of us, as someone who has maybe uh, uh, some kind of ability or gift or something that puts them outside of our range of connecting with, but this entire series was built based on this passage out of the book of James. James the brother of Jesus, the half-brother biological of Jesus, writes in his letter to the churches, to the early church, this incredible statement near the end of his letter in James chapter five. He says that Elijah was a man just like us. Now, if you were here last week, we talked about Elijah. Uh, Pastor Jeff did a phenomenal job talking about how Elijah had some incredible experiences with God where God literally answered him by fire. Now, this passage doesn't seem that incredible unless you understand how important Elijah is to the Jewish culture and would have been at the time when James wrote this. Because you see, the way that we kind of grow up and we wear like Superman pajamas or Batman pajamas or Wonder Woman pajamas, the, the little Jewish children in James's time, they would have grown up saying, these are my Elijah pajamas, right? Elijah was a hero for them. They grew up hearing stories about Elijah as this prophet who heard from God and called down fire and fire came from heaven and, and consumed offerings. And he, he, he battled 400 other prophets and put them to death by sword. And then James goes on to say, he prayed. And when he prayed, it didn't rain for three years. And then he prayed again and it started raining again. And Elijah becomes our hero because he knows how to turn off the faucet that we live under here in the Northwest. And so Elijah becomes heroic for all of those reasons. And then James has this incredible audacity to make this amazing statement that says, Elijah was just a dude. He's just a guy like you and like me. He put his pants on. I don't know if they wore pants back then. He put his tunic on. He threw his robe over him, one armhole at a time, just like you. And just like me. And so the entire series, we're walking through this idea that God uses incredibly normal people who make themselves available to do incredible things that are heroic. And then we walked into this tension that we don't really know what a hero is anymore. Is it heroic when I post something on Facebook? If I repost or like a comment, is that heroic? Sometimes we think that's heroic. Sometimes it's heroic to just not comment on something. That's pretty heroic. It gets to be a challenge to figure out what is heroic. Is it heroic if I let you merge in front of me in traffic? Probably. <laughs> but what is a hero? So we go to the dictionary and ask the dictionary to help us. And the dictionary is not sure what a hero is anymore. It says it's someone who's noted for courageous acts of nobility or character. And then a couple lines down, it says it's a sandwich. So what is a hero? I need a hero. We don't know what a hero is anymore. So it gets hard to identify a hero. And we look into the scriptures and we go, we're looking for our heroes, people who experienced incredible things. 
And here's James, the brother of Jesus, who grew up with Jesus saying, I just need you to be aware that these guys that you see as heroes, they were men and women just like us. And all of the things God did in them and through them are available to happen in and through all of us. So this week, I want to dive into this idea of of a hero and what a hero looks like and a hero wearing what fits, you know, last two weeks ago, we talked about Moses and his incredible willingness in, in crazy circumstances to just make himself available. And if you didn't catch that one, you can catch up with me on that. But I, but I love the conversation about Moses because Moses had all these reasons why he shouldn't be the hero. And as God overcame each one of his excuses for not wanting to move into heroism, his final, final debate with God, he just said, God, can you just choose somebody else? And God says, no, I picked you. And he says, okay, I'll go. And Moses becomes heroic by just being willing to say yes to God. And today we're going to talk about a hero that I think you're going to be really familiar with. And I hope that it comes alive for you in in a way that maybe you haven't seen before. But if you have your Bibles, we're going to go to 1 Samuel chapter 17 in just a moment. We're going to talk about one of the most famous stories of the Bible about a young man who overcomes incredibly uh, amazing odds to do something heroic. And I was thinking about some of my heroes growing up, I had heroes of all kinds. There were fictional heroes. There were uh, heroes that just spoke into my life. But one of my very first real authentic heroes was a teenager. I was about 13 years old and he was about 16 years old and he was one of the cool kids. And I wanted to be just like him. His name was Brian and I was going to youth group. And the thing, you knew Brian was one of the cool kids because in the second row at our youth group is where all the cool kids sat, which meant good-looking girl, good-looking girl, good-looking girl, Brian, good-looking girl, good-looking girl, good-looking girl, at least in my 13-year-old brain. And that's where all the cool kids were. But Brian somehow had cracked the code of sitting in that second row. So we all looked up to Brian. We all wanted to be like Brian, but I wasn't anywhere on Brian's radar. And then one day out of nowhere, Brian looks back to me. I'm in about the fourth row on the edge with the smelly smelly middle schoolers. And uh, he goes, hey, Mike, why don't you come sit with me? Are you serious? That's row two status, because row runs empty, right? That's row two status. And so I walked up, and I sat next to Brian. And he's like, right on, man. Tell me how your day is going. I talked with Brian for a little bit. I didn't know why, or I didn't know how, but Brian made a decision to mentor me and to invest in me. Brian became my guy. He picked me. I don't know why. And he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you. So this is how Brian mentored me. You'll love this. This is imagine teenage, 13-year-old Mike. We're at summer camp. And Brian says, hey, come sit at our table. Again, cool kid table. Good-looking girl, good-looking girl, good-looking girl. Brian, high school quarterback, good-looking girl. 13-year-old Mike. Now maybe, yeah, still 13. Brian says, come sit at our table when the food comes. And the food comes. And it comes out. And I'm a 13-year-old boy. I just start eating. Right? I'm just eating two hands, grabbing everything I can grab. Brian looks over at me and goes, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm just eating. He goes, well, stop it. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? He goes, put that down. I'm like, okay. He goes, do you see this? This is your fork. You're going to use that if you're going to sit at our table. <laughs> Talk to me just like that. He's 16. I was like, uh, okay. He goes, take your fork, cut some food, take a bite, chew it, put your fork down, then talk. Do you know how uh, like a light bulb went off in my head in my 13-year-old brain? It had never occurred to me. I grew up around Puerto Ricans. If you didn't eat your food quickly, someone took it from you. 
Someone said, oh, you must not need that and just start eating off of your plate. I had no sense of what it was like. Pretty soon I was dressing like Brian. I was talking like Brian. When Brian wasn't there, I still sat at the right table. Come on now. I had broken in. I was trying to be another version of Brian. I was Brian 2.0. And Brian was, was at my church, at my youth group, and he, I just looked up to him. I wanted to be Brian. He was my hero. So a couple, well, I don't know, several months later, I was sitting down with my youth pastor, and my youth pastor asked me, he goes, hey, he goes, Mike, and I said, yeah. He goes, he goes who, who do you look up to the most in life? Who, who do you look up to the most as a Christian? And I was like, oh, trick question. You want me to say you? That's where my head went, right? I was like, um, it's probably Brian, but I'll say you. I said, you. And he goes, no, 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 don't tell me what I, he read through that, right? He's like, don't tell me what I wanna hear. Who do you really look, who do you look up to? Who's the person that you try to be like? And I was like, well, Brian. And he goes, okay. He goes, who's the only person you should ever completely look up to and try to be like? I was like, oh, okay, you. He goes, no, no, you're still missing it. And my 13-year-old brain, 14-year-old brain at this point hasn't put it together. He goes, who's the only person that you should look up to and try to be like? And I was like, okay, it's gotta be Jesus because you know, that's the only other answer I know. Jesus. And he goes, absolutely. And I said, why are we talking about this? And he goes, well, I just want you to know something. <clears throat> Brian came to me this week and said he's not gonna come to church anymore. Said he's made some different decisions in his life and uh, he just looked me in the eye and said, I don't wanna do this anymore. I'm not gonna follow Jesus. I believe in Jesus, but I just wanna do my own thing. And I was devastated. Everything in my life up until that point for the last six, eight months and maybe a year had been, how do I be the better version of Brian? And Brian couldn't even be the better version of Brian. My hero status was devastated. I wept, not for the loss of my friend, but the loss of my hero. I remember walking up to Brian at school, like, this can't be true. And he just walked away from me, like he never knew me. Found a new group and, and I was out. And I realized something. I realized that sometimes we put people on a pedestal and make them heroes for the wrong reasons. Because they have attributes like charisma or something else that we want to be like. And it was really challenging for me. It took me a long time. I knew the words and the vocabulary that Jesus was the only person, come on now, that I could really trust and put my life after, but Brian was my guy. Sometimes I think we look up to people and, and put them into a place they can't even get to. That's why it's so devastating when we see heroes falling and so hard to see that there's cracks in their armor and that they're human also. And so we do this thing. We, we put people up on pedestals. You know, one of the least heroic statements we could ever make is, well, I couldn't do that because I'm not like them and I don't have the qualifications, the smarts, the expertise. I, I, don't, I didn't put the work in. I don't have all the things that they have. We elevate some people to positions of hero that, that God hasn't put into those positions, but we elevate them. And then we get into the word of God and Paul says these crazy ridiculous things like in 1 Corinthians 1 where he says, but God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are. We think God chose the things that are to do the things that are and God doesn't work that way. He chose the things that are not and elevates them. And this is a story that we're gonna dive into today about God choosing a thing that is, was not and making him into a thing that was. And we're gonna talk about a little shepherd boy by the name of David. 
Most of you know the story. You know the backdrop, and you know he has an epic battle with the giant, and that's the story we're going to walk in today. But I want to give you a little history of what's going on at this time as David gets a promotion from a thing that is not to a thing that is. David is a shepherd boy. He's the eighth son of Jesse, and his job is to tend sheep in a time when that wasn't a very prestigious position. Israel is in a very interesting time in its history. It is now occupying the promised land. Uh, They have external forces that are constantly putting pressure on them. Uh, The book of Judges and the season of Judges has gone by. And uh, God has this unique relationship with this people group where he says, I want to be your leader. I want you to trust me to be your leader. And so Israel does that for a season and things go well and then they stop doing that and they stop trusting God and then things tank. An outside force comes in and, and, and they end up under some kind of oppression and God raises up a judge, someone to act on his behalf to kind of help Israel get their, uh, their head right and start living right and then God restores and redeems them and, and this pattern happens over and over and that's the book of Judges. At the end of this, Israel has now kind of gotten a little frustrated as they see the way that other governments have set themselves up is they just choose a king to make all the decisions and rule over them. And so Israel says, we want a king. And God says, you don't need a king, you've got a God. And they said, but we want a king. And he says, you don't need a king, you've got relationship with me. And they say, well, we want a king. And he goes, okay, fine, I'll give you a king. And they choose a king based on all the best criteria you could possibly use to choose a king, they choose Saul because he's tall and good looking. Those are pretty good requirements, prereqs for kingship, right? Tallest, best looking dude, Saul. Scripture says he was head and shoulders taller than everybody else. So he becomes the king. Now, as you can imagine, things don't go terribly well after this. Saul has a season of some success. God gives him some favor. They win a couple battles, but Saul, because they chose him based on external, see, they they chose him based on God-given gifts, but not godly character. Sometimes we elevate people because of their God-given gifts. They can sing well. They're smart. They're funny. They have God-given gifts, so we elevate them. They can act or whatever it is, right? They, have, they can throw a ball really hard or, or, or whatever it is. Those are God-given gifts. But God looks for God-given, God-developed character and a willingness to partner with God and be in relationship with God when he elevates somebody. So here comes King Saul, and they win a battle. And there's a process after they win a battle to kind of uh, to give that to the Lord. There's a sacrifice that's supposed to be made by the prophet of God, but the prophet of God doesn't seem to be showing up in the timing when Saul wants him to show up. And so he hasn't shown up yet. And Saul says, I'll just do this on my own. He's impatient. He doesn't wait for the timing of the Lord and he goes ahead and does the job that the prophet's supposed to do and the prophet shows up and says, what are you doing? And Saul says, well, you were late because God's always late, right? And Saul says, well, God saw what you did here. God saw that you weren't patient and that you didn't trust him and that you tried to make it happen on your own and because of that, he's gonna take the kingdom and give it to somebody else. Those are fighting words if you're the king. After that, Saul and the prophet aren't getting along too well. And so God tells Samuel, the prophet, he says, I'm gonna send you to go find the next king and you're gonna anoint him and that's gonna be the king. So Samuel leaves, he kind of sneaks off uh, because he knows Saul's not gonna like this and he's listening to God and God sends him to Bethlehem. The prophet shows up in Bethlehem and they freak out. 
Why is the prophet here? Is this a bad omen? Something's going to happen. What's happening? And so he says, don't worry, don't worry. It's a good thing. We're going to do a sacrifice. I just need you to bring all the guys by, and I'm going to size them all up before we do this sacrifice. And uh, they say, okay. So they start bringing everybody through. And then the Spirit of the Lord directs him to Jesse. And he says, one of Jesse's sons is going to be the next king. That's who's going to be your guy who you anoint. Jesse doesn't know what's going on, but he hears from the prophet, and the prophet says, well, bring your sons by. He does, and he looks at him, and the first son that comes by is a guy named Eliab, and, and, and Samuel looks at him, he goes, whoo, this guy's buff, full head of hair, probably, he's tall, good choice, God, this is what we like, and God says, no, 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 no. He says, you keep looking on the outside, man looks at the outside, but I'm looking at the heart, that's not the guy. And then Samuel goes person by person through all these sons of Jesse, all seven of them. Gets to the end and God hasn't said, yeah, that's the guy on these guys. He goes, so this is confusing. So he goes to Jesse, he goes, was there any more sons? He goes, well, there's one. He's like the whippersnapper of the group. He's the youngest, but he's out with the sheep. He plays the harp a lot. He sings songs and he hangs out and he's got the, you know, he's got the low end of the totem pole job. He's out there with the sheep. And he says, well, bring him in. So they go and they fetch this young man named David, and David comes in, and Samuel goes, that's the guy. So he takes the anointing oil, and he anoints him. Now, you gotta imagine, he dumps this oil on him in front of everybody, all the brothers, says, you're the next king. I'm out. And then he leaves him there. Listen, I don't know about you, but if I'm out doing my job, and, and suddenly someone comes and says, here's the anointing of the Lord, you have a big job coming up. I would expect him to say, okay, where's the next step? What's the process? He doesn't leave him a timetable. He doesn't leave him a process. He doesn't, all my type A personalities would go crazy with this. What do you mean I'm the next king? What is that? Do I gotta take special classes? Do I gotta learn how to fight better? Like what's my, what's the thing you need from me to do this? He just leaves. So David with seven big brothers, let's think about this looking down at him like, this kid? This kid's gonna be the king of us? Get back out there and tend to the sheep, king boy, right? And they start, they start talking smack to him. You're gonna see it. it's gonna come out in the story. They start talking trash to him. They aren't uh, impressed with him. And he just goes back to work. I don't know, I'm not even into the, all the way into the story yet, into the scripture, but I just think some of you in the room may need to hear this simple truth. You've been frustrated because God's given you a destiny. God's anointed you for a purpose, but it isn't God's time yet. And you gotta be faithful to the last thing he's called you to until he unpackages what the next thing is, is gonna be. And you're frustrated, but you need to hear that where you're at right now, though it might not be your destination, it might be part of the process. Where you're at right now is not your destination, but it's part of the process. And David has to go back and start tending sheep again. He's writing songs. He's tending sheep. He goes right back. The thing you're doing right now might not be the thing, but it might be the thing that leads to the thing. Does that make sense? The thing you're doing right now, it might not be the thing, but it might be the thing that leads to the thing. And God's saying, you're in a season of preparation. I've already put a call on your life and you'd like to speed things up. But remember how Saul lost the kingdom? He couldn't wait. He had to make it happen himself. He knew there was a plan. He knew God had a process, but he's like, have you seen my skill set? I'm tall and good looking. I got this. If you don't show up, God, I'll do the job. 
And he relied on his skill set and he didn't trust God and it cost him the kingdom. So David gets told, you're the next king. And his brothers are like, get out there, sheep boy. Some of you are frustrated. God just has you doing the thing that's gonna lead to the thing. That's okay. So we fast forward and a crisis hits and it's time for a hero to show up. And I'm in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse one. I'm gonna take us through a lot of story today. I'm gonna pray that God just jumps through the story into your life and changes your heart. It says, now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Demim between Soko and Azekah and Saul and the Israelites. Here's what you care about. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the Valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with a valley in between them. Here's what you have to understand. The Valley of Elah is exactly that. It's a valley. And there's hills. It's hill country on both sides. And the Israelites always lived in the hills. They always took the high land. They weren't chariot people. They were hill top living people, right? They lived on the South Hill. Come on now. They lived in the hill. They were hilltop livers, right? And so what happens is the Philistines come out to fight them. Now, the Philistines are a fascinating culture throughout history. The Philistines show up way back in the book of Judges, and the Philistines were actually Greek, and they were sailors, and they were adventurers, and travelers, and pirates, and ruthless, but they also were eco uh, economically and, uh, and technologically advanced over uh, some of the other civilizations, because they just gobbled up civilizations. What the Philistine strategy was, was they, they, and they were very good at making wine. That was like their strength. They had good skills with weapons, and they had good skills with booze, which made them very popular and very strong. And so they show up and their strategy, if you go back to like the story of Samson, the first time we really see them, their strategy was always to just merge into a new culture. And they would say, hey, don't fight us because we're tough. And look at all this technological advances. And hey, cheers, party's on. And they would just merge into these cultures and they would assimilate these cultures and they would say, oh, you worship God? That's cool. We worship gods too. You worship your God on Tuesday and then party with us on Wednesday and worship our God on Wednesday. And if your God doesn't like you to you know, get hammered, you can get hammered with our God on Thursday. And they would just merge into these cultures and they created this multicultural identity in their faith that they would try to merge into and they would try to get the people of God to be convinced that you can just be everything. You don't have to stand for anything. Strategy's been deployed by the enemy for a long, long time. So suddenly the people of God have now got a king and they become a little bit more threatening than they were before. So the Philistines go, okay, our model isn't working. What we also are, are technologically advanced and we're tough fighters. So if you're gonna kind of withdraw from that kind of strategy of being conquered, we'll just conquer you literally. So this battle breaks out. Saul is the king of the Israelites and you've got this Philistine army and they come to this valley of Elah. Now, both armies are on hills looking across the hill at each other and it's a stalemate. And here's why it's a stalemate because neither one wants to give up the high ground. If they go down into the valley and have to fight the other troops, they're gonna be fighting uphill. And I learned something about six, eight years ago in a uh, Star Wars movie that there is absolutely no advantage that overcomes having the high ground. If you have the high ground, you win any sword fight. Apparently that's a thing. And so they have the high ground and they're not giving up the high ground to go into the valley and fight. 
So day after day, these two armies have amassed on the individual hilltops and they're just looking over at each other. They're too far away to throw spears or rocks or any of those kinds of things. And none of them want to descend into the valley where they would have to fight uphill to fight the other battle. So in verse one, you see the Philistines, uh, oh, I'm sorry, let's, uh, verse four. It says, so a champion, oh, so, the, so then the strategy is now to mock the other army and lure them into a disadvantageous position. That's what you want to do. You want to say, we're not scared of you, nana, 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 come fight us, right? That's the model of battle that's happening right here. And so a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. Okay, it just got real. Saul was elevated because he was tall right? Tall was power and strength. I don't know how this guy got to be nine feet tall. All I can see is in my head, like Andre the giant plus another foot. That's crazy. He's a big dude. It says he, he had a bronze helmet on his head and he wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. That's a lot of shekels. I had to look up how much a shekel weighed, basically about 120 pounds of armor he's wearing. He had about an 11 or 12-year-old on his body, just clinging to him, right? Maybe a 13-year-old. I don't know how heavy your, your kids are, right? About, he had like a 13-year-old just on his back, 120 pounds. He's a big dude. He's nine feet tall. He's wearing 120 pounds of armor. It says on his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod. I don't even know what that means. And its iron point weighed 600 shekels. That means 15 pounds. The tip of his spear that he would chuck at you was 15 pounds. I don't know if you ever try to throw 15 pounds at somebody. It says his shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man. Fight me like a man, that's what he says, and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we'll become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, this day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. This is an old battle strategy. Send out your best warrior, we'll send your, our best warrior, and the winner take all. Now, I try to look through history because this fascinated me. I can't imagine the scenario where you defeat their best guy, and then everyone else just throws down the things. They're like, okay, kill us now. I just don't know how that really worked in history, but I know it was a regular battle strategy throughout history that you would send your apex fighter at the top of the food chain and it's winner take all, at least the territory you would retreat from and you would say, you guys got it. And so here comes Goliath and he says, give me a man, let me fight him. And terror creeps in. Let's be clear, there's not a lot of heroes in this story. Isn't it interesting that the enemy moves through giants the same way today? He sends out giants to shout you down, to say, hey, 
What are you doing up here trying to put up a fight? You can't fight me. You're not strong enough. Your God doesn't have your back. He's not gonna help you. I, don't you see how big and strong and fearful you should be of me? And we see the enemy working through giants just like that today, saying things like, I still own you. You're still gonna be addicted. You can't fight this. Fear is gonna get its way with you. You have no chance against me. You get up every day. God doesn't help you. That's the message of Goliath. That's the story of the giants that we face. Now we see David come into the picture in verse 12, and it's fascinating. It says, now David was the son of a Jesse who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he was old and well advanced in year. Jesse's three oldest sons, we, David's brothers, we met some of them, uh, had followed Saul to the war. So, so, a war breaks out and they're like, hey, I don't want to tend sheep anymore. I'm going to go fight. I'm old enough. I'm a fighting man. I'm going to go fight with Saul. And it says they went to join Saul in the war. Now, is there a war actually being fought? Not really, but they're mean mugging each other every day. It says the firstborn was Eliab. We met him. The second, Abinadab. And the third was Shema. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So war breaks out, but David is still doing the last job. He's still tending sheep. Listen to this. For 40 days, the Philistines came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. 40 days. Isn't that interesting how often 40 days pops up in scripture? 40 days, 40 years, always significant. It's a literal time period, but the reality is 40 days represent something. It's about how much you could take of something. It's really what it comes down to. You look through scripture, he's tempted for 40 days. He fasted for 40 days. The enemy uh, attempted to attack for 40 days. This enemy shouts them down for 40 days. That basically 40 days is about how long the scriptures think you can handle something before you just snap. 40 days is a literal number, but the point is it's been happening for a long time. The Philistine comes forward every morning. And he's like, you got nothing. You're weak. God dominate, God, I'm gonna dominate you and God. And they just bow down. So Jesse says to his son, David, take this ephah of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these 10 cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurances for them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the Valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. Basically, he says, you're gonna have a new job for me, pizza delivery boy. Take this cheese and bread, put some sauce on it and deliver it to your brothers. So David, remember, anointed. You're gonna be the next king. That's awesome. Big brother's like, get out of here, go tend the sheep. I'm like, okay, right? Finally, after years of staying in the same job, he gets a promotion, pizza delivery boy. Sometimes God's trying to promote you, but that promotion looks like a demotion because you gotta be willing to serve and God's looking for people who are willing to serve so he can promote them, come on now, from servant to king. Remember all the outward things that everyone else thought was important. God said, I'm looking at the heart and the heart condition and David's willingness to serve is gonna be an incredible component in his ability to eventually lead. And we get frustrated because we feel like God's put a call in our life and the next opportunity in front of us looks like a demotion, not a promotion. And so we don't want to do it. So well, that can't be the thing. 
One of the traps the enemy often uses is to get you to believe that serving is beneath you. As someone, you put your time in. You're already out with the sheep. Don't be a pizza delivery boy. You're supposed to be the king. But David's willingness to serve perfectly positioned him for God to use him. I heard one pastor say it this way. If David was not willing to be a gopher, he could have never been a gladiator. If he wasn't willing to be a gopher, he could have never been a gladiator. So verse 20 says, early in the morning, David left the flock with a shepherd, loaded up, got his bread, his cheese, his pizzas, and he set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions and shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines and facing each other. I want you to get this. Every morning, these guys are waking up. They go out to the top of the battle positions. They form their line on their hill. They look across the valley at these guys and they go, ah! And then these guys go, ah! And that was the war. That's what's happening in the battle, right? And after they shout, out comes Goliath. And Goliath goes, ha! I'm going to fight you all. And they all, okay, that's what happens. I just want you to get the picture, right? So they're doing that. David left his things with the keeper of the supplies and ran to the battle lines and greeted his brothers. Verse 23, as he was talking with them, Goliath the Philistine, the champion of Gath, stepped out from the lines and he shouted his usual mama jokes. And David heard it. It says, usual defiance. It says, when the Israelites saw the man, they all ran away from him in great fear. This has been going on for 40 days. They get their courage up every evening and they go back out in the morning and they shout, ah, and the enemy shouts, ah, and then out steps Goliath. And every morning he has the same challenge. He says, your God doesn't care about you. You can't fight me. Send me a man to fight. And they all go, whoa, not talking to me. And they slide back. It says, now the Israelites, where am I at? Yeah, now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. Listen to this. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give his daughter in marriage. And listen to this. And will exempt his father's family from taxes in Israel. Come on, somebody. That's a good prize. That's a good prize. Not just his father, his father's family. That's like generational debt forgiveness. That's a huge deal. Verse 26, David asked the men standing near him, um, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Listen to his language. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now listen. I don't know if you've read your Bible or not, but some of the best smack talking in the history of time happens in the scriptures. You think guys that are good at it now, like, I don't know, there used to be a basketball team here. See that smack talking? And they used to have a player called Gary Payton and he was like really well known for talking so much trash. He would just get you so frustrated, you'd make mistakes and he'd steal the ball from you and score. Everybody liked Payton, all right? And, uh, and uh, he had nothing on these guys. He had nothing on these guys. David takes a look at this giant and this giant's like, what do you got? You got nothing. And David's like, everybody's looking at the size of the man. They're looking up here. David's like, uh, who's this uncircumcised fellow? 
He had a different viewpoint. He's shorter, okay? He's got a different viewpoint. And he goes, who's this uncircumcised? This guy ain't been to the doctor. Who's this uncircumcised guy that mocks us? And you guys are, oh, Pastor, you're a little uh, uncouth. Well, let me just be clear. There is an incredibly significant point that David's making here. Because circumcision was a big deal, not just because, uh, you know, it identified you as a, as a Jewish person, but it identified you as someone who was in the covenant of God. Someone who God's covering. Circumcision was a sign of covering. That, that at least for the males, that you had submitted to God and that God was over you and with you. And David says, I don't care how big that man is. Look at his covering. He's not covered the way that we're covered. That means God is not with him. Can we talk for just a moment at, at some real talk? Because I have conversations with people a lot of time who are battling some giants. Giants like fear. And they say, man, I just, I'm struggling with fear. Every, every day I think I'm gonna get to the next place that God's called me to get to, but I, I, there's fear in there. And I ask questions. I say, you know, fear is an interesting thing. Let's get into our Bible and you show me where God motivates and moves his people through fear. That's not one of the tools that he uses in his arsenal. So I want you to recognize that's not a covered tool. That's not from God. That's not part of the covenant. That's not how he works. Let's recognize what enemy you're fighting here. People come to me sometimes and they're battling depression. They come to me and they're battling shame. Pastor Mike, you don't understand what I've done in the past and the shame that I have because of it, what was done to me. And I, I know God wants to use me, but because of what I've been through and what I've done, and I get into the word of God and I say, you show me where that particular giant is something that God uses to move the people of God, because it's not, it's something the enemy uses to paralyze the people of God. And David recognizes this giant is not something that God, because God will use things to move his people around the board from time to time. He'll operate to motivate you. He'll use godly wisdom in conviction. He'll send prophets. He'll send words to, to kind of get you to move to where you're trying to get to. But this isn't that. And David is clear. This uncircumcised fellow's got nothing on us. He's got nothing. He doesn't have the power of God behind him. Haven't you met the power of God? Why are we putting up with this? Why are day after day we're shrinking back in fear and this thing's not even covered? So yeah, he's talking smack, but he's talking... Pretty big talk. Verse 27, David says, you know, to him, who is this guy? And then they repeat to him what they had been saying. They said, well, this is what will be done for the man who kills him, right? What was the, what was the thing that will be done? Uh, you get to marry the king's daughter. You get a ton of money. And all your family's done with paying taxes, right? You can imagine David going, whoa. I mean, a pile of money is a good thing, right? But marrying the king's daughter is an important, amazing thing because you got to think about it. To get into the royal family is like impossible if you're not already someone of an elevated position. He's just a seventh son, a shepherd boy. To get a daughter of the king as a bride and be integrated into the, the I mean, we still love in, in modern times when someone from outside of royal lineage, I, I mean, you know, if you're old enough to remember when Princess Diana became Princess Diana and she, from her background to get into the royal family, we're like, that's so cool. David's like, that's an amazing thing. But then, not only that, but his entire family, his father's household, being blessed because of it. 
Look at verse 28. It says, when Eliab, we met him before, David's oldest brother heard him speaking with the men. He burned with anger at him. He says, why have you come down here? And whom did you leave those few sheep with in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, says David? Can't I even speak? He then, listened to this, turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. And the men answered him as before. And when David was overheard, and it, what David said was overheard and reported to Saul and Saul sent for him. I want you to catch what happens here. Someone who knows David close, blood relative, looks at him and says, I know what's in your heart. Your heart is wicked. You're selfish. You're just trying to get out of working with the sheep and watch the battle. I know your true motive. Some of us, haven't stepped into the destiny God's called us because there's somebody in our life who spoke something, who was in a position of authority in our lives that wasn't from God and they presumed to know what was in your heart and they shrunk your dream and the voice that you hear that's shouting you down is a voice you recognize. It's not your voice and it's not God's voice, but it's a voice you recognize. And you know what David did? It says, David turned away from him. He goes, can't I even speak? And he turns away from him. And some of you this morning have got to understand that the only way you're gonna move past the voices that someone's been speaking into your heart and into your life that has been spoken over your life that's paralyzed you is you're gonna have to turn away. Say, I can't listen to that trash anymore and you can't presume to know what's in my heart and what God's doing. He doesn't honor his brother here. He doesn't respect what he said. He's, we know later in scripture that David is described as a man after God's own heart. We know that, that Samuel has chosen him because God said, stop looking at the outside and start looking at the heart. We know and have a picture that David's heart is good, but someone came right after him and said, oh, all those, all those things that you've been believing for yourself, that's because you have pride. That's because you're selfish. That's because you think you're entitled to something. Can I tell you something? You are part of the family of God. You are entitled to a lot. I'm just saying. If your dad is the king, you are entitled to some things. And someone trying to shame you and say, well, you're dreaming too big. You think you're entitled to something. That's nonsense, and you need to turn away from those voices. And it's just what the scripture says, so... So David learns that if he beats Goliath, he's going to be rich. He's going to be in the royal family. And this knucklehead is even going to get blessed who's talking smack to him. Some of the people on the outside of your life don't even know that they're positioned to get blessed by your success, even though they didn't intend for you to be successful at all. Your blessing, all ships are going to rise. I'm just saying. God's generous that way. Verse 32, Saul has called for him. It says, and David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. And Saul replied, you're not able to go against the Philistine and fight him. You're only a boy. You're only a boy. And he's been fighting a fighting man from his youth. Can I just make a quick point here because I'm running out of time? Just don't let anyone tell you what you only are. I'm just telling you. Don't let anyone tell you what you only are. You're only a this. You're only a boy. You're only so wise. You're only so tall. You're only so smart. You're only whatever it is. Don't let anyone tell you what you only are. David said to Saul, verse 34, um, you don't know about me. <laughs> he says, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came out and carried off the sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it and I rescued the sheep from its mouth. 
That's pretty awesome. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, I struck it, and I killed it. I'm just saying. I've never been around a lion or a bear. I had a mountain lion, like I came across a mountain lion's den one time, and you know what I did? I went, let's get out of here, right? <laughs> like, that's as close as I've ever been. David said, in my performing my duties that I've been assigned to while I've been waiting for my promotion, I've come into some hard stuff. And in those hard stuff moments, I've had to believe that God was with me and assigned me to this role. And I've had to take on some monsters. And they may not look like monsters that, that, that you see in front of you right now, but I faced down a couple giants. And when I faced them down, I went straight at them. And I used what God gave me, a stick. And I beat that giant and I beat that lion. And when he turned around and got in my face, I grabbed him by the hair. And I smacked him until he That's what he's saying. He's a good storyteller. He says, your servant has killed both lion and bear. This, here it is, uncircumcised Philistine would be like one of them because he's defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistines. So Saul said to David, okay, go. And the Lord be with you. Saul's like, all right. You talk a big game, let's see what you got. Listen, I just want you to catch this point because this is, I mean, if you don't catch it, this might help you. It says, God will use what you've been through to help you get through what you're going through. David doesn't have the right credentials for this particular fight. He's not trained with the military. He doesn't know thrust, parry, attack. He doesn't swing a sword, but he's been through some things. You've been through some things. And God will use what you've been through to help you get through what you're going through. There's no mistakes in this room. And you've walked through some stuff. And God, come on, I got testimony after testimony. God used the thing I went through to help me get through what I had to go through. That's the promise of God. It's the reality of God. It's how this thing works. Verse 38, I got to keep moving. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic and he put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. And David fastened on his sword over the tunic and he tried walking around because he wasn't used to them. He said, I cannot go in these, he said to Paul, because I'm not used to them. And he took them off. So Saul says, okay, you want to go fight this guy? You're just a shepherd boy. Here's my armor. And he puts his tunic on him and he puts his armor on him. And Dave does one of, David does one of these. Because what's the one thing we know for sure about Saul? He's tall. He's taller than everybody else. His armor is not going to fit this shepherd boy who's not even as tall as his brothers, right? And so he tries to put it on. Listen, some of us, just like me trying to put on Brian's life, we've been trying to put on what we think a hero looks like, what we think God needs us to look like. We've been trying to put on because we saw someone else do it this way. We think we got to do it the same way that someone else has done it. And that's just not how it works. That's not how it works. It doesn't fit. You're trying to do what this other person's done, what you've seen, and you're trying to duplicate it and replicate it. And God's like, that's not how I designed you. It doesn't fit. You see, a hero wears what fits. A hero wears what fits. If God's already been preparing you by what you've been through for what you're going through, you don't need to try to be like somebody else to do what God's called you to do. You gotta be you, who God's designed you to be. That's how that's gonna work. David couldn't be a better Saul than Saul. It just wasn't the way it was going to work. It's not heroic to try to be a better insert blank name of person you think is better than you than they are. 
You have to be the best version of you. You might do it differently. David's going to do it differently, but that's okay. David's method is not even where close to anybody else's method would have been to go fight Goliath. It's not. It's not. Just like the way you do things may not be, come on now, the way someone else would have done it. But God's able to move through you if you'll partner with God and trust him and just be who he's designed you to be. And that's okay. Verse 40 says, then he took his staff in his hand. He chose five smooth stones from the stream. He put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag and with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. Now listen, I spent way too much time down a rabbit hole trying to figure out why he grabbed five stones. And I can give you all kinds of theories. I can tell you that some think that each stone represented one of the points of the gospel. I can tell you that some said maybe he was afraid that God wouldn't help him right away and fear drove it. I can tell you that some said Goliath had four brothers. Maybe he assumed Goliath's four brothers were gonna come into the fight if he took on Goliath. So five stones would prepare him for that. Uh, It's all conjecture and my answer is gonna be conjecture too, but I just wanna tell you what I think happened. He strips off the tunic of Saul and the armor of Saul and drops the sword of Saul and he picks up his shepherd's staff and he has a pouch that he always wears and a sling that he always carries. And you know how many stones fit in the pouch that he always carries? Five. David said, this is my normal setup. When I go out to 10 sheep, I got five stones. If I go to battle, I got five stones. This is just who God made me to be. I'm a five stone player. And so if God's gonna use all five of my stones, great. If he wants to use one, great. If I don't even have to hit him with the stone, he might just fall over dead when I get close and have a heart attack. I'm not sure how this is gonna work, but I've been designed by God. This is how I normally set up. This is who I am. So I got a five stone pouch. And so I'm gonna put five stones in my pouch and he just puts them in. That's the best I can do with what I see here. And he approaches the Philistine. And my biggest takeaway is you never know if God's gonna use everything you got, if he's just gonna use your presence or how it's gonna work. So you just come prepared, being the best version of you and the best version of him was a full pouch of five stones. You can go on and read the story, but Goliath sees David approach and says, am I a dog? You come at me with sticks. And David takes his stone and he slips it into his sling. Woo. Woo, woo, and 120 pounds of armor can't stop this rock that he slings, whoosh, and he hits him in the forehead. And God, if you only have like the Sunday school version of the story, you should read the story. This is so much cooler than that. Goliath staggers and he falls forward and David rushes in and he doesn't know the state of Goliath. He just knows he's down. He doesn't have a sword on him. So he pulls out Goliath's sword which I'm assuming was large since everything about him is large. And he takes this big sword and he walks over, stands over Goliath. See, sometimes we knock down the the giants and God says, you got to finish that bad boy off so that it can't ever come back. You got to make this thing final. And he takes the sword. You guys are, Pastor Mike, are you serious? Yeah, I'm serious. He takes the sword and he chops down on the head of the neck of Goliath. I don't know if it was one shot, if it was two shots, if it was three shots, but eventually that big thick dome of that giant is loose and David takes it and he picks it up and he displays it. I 
David declares that his God has earned the victory. You know, everyone else looked at Goliath and they were more prepared. They had more training. They were military men and all they saw was a problem. But David, because of his background, he looked at this giant. He said, I don't see a problem. I see an opportunity. When everyone else saw a problem, a hero sees an opportunity. He says, okay, there's a stronghold here. There's a battle here. There's a fight. But this isn't a problem. This is a chance for my God who's bigger, who's not on equal footing with the giants that I face to demonstrate his faithfulness. This is an opportunity. And I don't got sword skills, but that guy's carrying a sword. One sword in the battle is all that's gonna be necessary. Because if God's with me, it doesn't matter what you bring to the fight. We're gonna win. So let me ask you a question. What are the giants in your life that need slain right now? What are the giants in your life that you've been battling? What are the giants that you wake up in the morning and there's a dream in your heart for what God can do? And the moment that alarm clock goes off, you're thinking, oh, maybe today's the day God's gonna do something. And suddenly the voice starts shouting down and that uncircumcised fellow starts saying, God's not with you. You don't have this. You can't do this. You're gonna be stuck. What are the giants that need slaying in your life today? See, David was a guy just like us. He didn't have special skills. He didn't have special training. He didn't go to hero school. He just did his normal nine to fiver and he honored his mother and father. And he worked hard and he made a decision to be a worshiper and to trust God. And when he saw the battle and he saw the fear that the giants put into everyone else, he said, the God who's been with me through everything else is still gonna be with me today. And he'll take whatever I got and use it to win this battle. I can't put on someone else's armor and do it their way. I'm gonna have to do it the way God designed me. So what are the battles? What are the giants that you're facing? Maybe the giants that you're facing look like fear. God's put a dream in your heart. And it's just been, I don't know, it would be too risky to go after it. And it looks like fear. And you're hearing a voice saying, God's not gonna be with you if you step out of faith and do that. It's not gonna work. Maybe the battle looks like, you know you're supposed to do something and God's got you in this season of still tending sheep. And just like Saul, you're like, I could just make this happen right now if God would just say yes. God's like, I'm, I'm, I'm taking you through what you're going through so you're ready. Come on, this thing is getting you ready for the thing, but even though you know it's not the thing. And the temptation like Saul is to jump ahead and do it. Maybe the battle that you're fighting, the giant that you're fighting looks a little bit like addiction. Looks like I keep trying to get away from this thing, but then I keep coming back to it. And I keep waking up and saying, I'm not gonna give this thing any access to me. I'm not gonna give it any access to me. And then it starts creeping in and saying, Yes, you are. Yes, you're just like you did yesterday and just like you did the day before that. And your God didn't help you then. Your God's not gonna help you today. And that fear and that addiction are coming up. Maybe it's just personal sin. Maybe it's the weight of some decisions that you've made that have taken you outside of the plan of God for your life. And now shame has crept in and you feel like, well, there's no way I could get back to that. And I gotta just tell you that my God is not a God of do-overs. He's a God of new beginnings. You don't get like a bad mark, but you still get to keep trying. He says, no, 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 if I called you, you're gonna do it. David goes through all kinds of mess after this. Remember the whole Bathsheba thing? That's a pretty hot, messy story. But God gives him new beginnings, new beginnings, new beginnings. Would you stand with me? 
And if there's a rock near you on one of the chairs, would you grab it? I'm gonna pray for you and listen. I'm giving you a rock today, something simple and plain because I want you to understand that the things that you just, the, the simple things that God's brought you to this point and equipped you with are all you're gonna need to get past the giants, come on, that are trying to shout you down. Those uncircumcised fellows that are trying to convince you you can't do what God's called you to do. God's already in what you've been through prepared you for what you're going through. The question is, will you understand what fits you? And will you trust God, understanding that you plus Jesus is enough to conquer whatever giant is in your way? So take the stone and you can hold it. And my prayer is gonna be that throughout the week and maybe the months ahead, that this will just be a, a reminder that when those voices start coming up, whether it's a voice you have to turn away from from your past, whether it's just a lie that the enemy is trying to get you to believe about what your limitations are, when those voices start coming up, when you feel like I have to make this happen on my own because God hasn't done it, you just remember a story, a heroic story of a young, simple boy who trusted God and believed that if God was with him, there was nothing that was impossible, just like for you. So this morning, God, we close our time just recognizing that you do choose the simple things of this world to confound the, the, the complicated, the foolish things to confound the wise, the weak things to confound the strongs. And, and in our weakness, you provide strength. When we lean in and are dependent on you, there's strength that's available beyond what we could ever imagine. So I pray in the name of Jesus, number one, that we would deal with any place where the enemy is continually, continually attacking us. And we understand that the enemy wants, wants to set up camp and battle us day after day. It wants to establish a stronghold. It wants a foothold in our life. And so we recognize whatever this area is, we confess it, we admit, and we come clean and we say, we're done with that. And we want to repent and leave it behind. God, I'm sorry when I haven't trusted you. I'm sorry when I've returned to my bad decisions. I'm sorry when I haven't believed that I could conquer and defeat the things that you've uh, 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 prepared me to do. And I've, I've listened to the lie. I'm not going to listen to the lie anymore. I'm going to take what you've given me and gifted me with. And with your strength, it's going to be enough. And we're going to experience victory. We trust you. We love you. We recognize even though that Elijah was a man just like us, Elijah experienced the presence and power of the living God, and we can experience that too, and that's heroic. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen, and amen, and amen. Hey, let's go be heroic this week. What do you guys say? God bless you. Have an awesome week in the Lord. We'll see you next week.